John chapter 4. In one sense, the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is a book about evangelism. God going on a mission, seeking and saving a lost, dying world of people who are alienated from him. Yeshua's arrival on earth can be understood as a great evangelistic mission. This tells us that evangelism, proclaiming the good news, is very important. Introducing people to Yeshua should be at the very heart, the very center of who we are as individuals and as communities of Yeshua followers. Yeshua, of course, was the greatest evangelist of all. In this part of the divinely inspired book of John, John gives us lessons in evangelism from the master evangelist himself. Each one of us should be little evangelists. Yeshua had been in the Judean countryside. News reached him that the Pharisees, who were very influentially, religiously and politically influential, knew that Yeshua was becoming more popular than John the Baptist. And John was immensely popular. The leadership of the Pharisees did not like Yeshua, and learning about his growing popularity intensified their dislike of the young rabbi from Nazareth. So perhaps to avoid a confrontation, Yeshua left Judea, which was closer to the center of the power of the Pharisees, and headed north to Galilee. However, he went the shorter way, the more direct way through Samaria. Let's pick up in John chapter 4, verse 5. Eventually, Yeshua came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Yeshua, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Yeshua said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Yeshua, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Yeshua replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Yeshua replied, 
Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Yeshua told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Yeshua said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. The woman understood that Yeshua was a prophet who had heard from God. And remember, there had not been a prophet in Israel for some 400 years. So she asked the prophet about the issue that divided the Samaritans and the Jewish people. Whose religion was right, the Jewish religion or the Samaritan religion? Verse 19, sir, the woman asked, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped, which was the right place for worship? Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Of course, the answer was Jerusalem. But Yeshua told her that very soon a radical change was coming that would diminish the importance of worship in Jerusalem. In fact, that change had already started. Verse 21, Yeshua replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming indeed. It's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit, and in truth. There is a lot to think about in this section of the Word of God, this conversation between Yeshua and this Samaritan woman. It is very rich. Let's start off with, dear woman, believe me, dear woman. Rabbi Glenn, your thoughts? Well, as we discussed in chapter 2, the Greek text just says woman. 
the NLT correctly softens it by rendering it dear woman. Uh, to us, woman sounds rude, like, woman, where's my dinner? Um, but in fact, the expression woman uh, in that context was a title of honor, a bestowal of honor. A reasonably close equivalent would be our polite use of the word ma'am. It was politeness. Now, what's remarkable about Messiah, according this woman, a title of honor, is that by all accounts, she isn't someone deserving of it. Now, Yeshua reveals that she's been married five times and at this point is living with a man who isn't her husband. It probably explains her being an outcast and why, from the other women in the city, and why she had come all alone to the well to draw and in the hottest part of the day. And yet, in spite of her apparent reputation, Yeshua accords her this respectful title, dear woman. It shows us something of God's grace. He treats us so much better than we deserve. Yeshua said the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Rabbi Jerry, Yeshua is saying something very profound, very significant. He's teaching us something about the Sinai covenant and a radical change, uh, a new covenant. Uh, please share with us your thoughts. Yeah, so this woman, the Samaritan woman, you know, she's identified Yeshua as a prophet. And so, you know, she, here she is. She believes she's talking to a prophet of God. And her very first question is about mountains, which tells you this was a very, very big deal to her and a big deal to Samaritans and a big deal to Jewish people. But Yeshua, not answering her question directly, says, you know, your question's kind of irrelevant because pretty soon, indeed, even now, it isn't going to matter which mountain you're talking about or even Jerusalem, that there's something new and exciting happening that there's going to be a radical change in worship of the Lord. And so this would have been a very shocking statement to her, uh, especially for a prophet of God to say, you know, Jerusalem, you know, the city of God, you know, the, the one place on earth that we Jewish people believe you can worship the one true God, that, that idea of only worshiping Jerusalem is about to change really soon here. And, of course, this statement requires more explanation, which is why we have the rest of the text. The time is coming indeed. It's here now. Rabbi Glenn talked to us about, indeed, it's here now. Well, Yeshua could say it's here now because he, the Son of God, was himself present in that moment on the earth. Uh, Yeshua's coming into the world redefined everything. And as the Messiah, he has the authority to give final uh, interpretation to all that God has communicated. So the king is here, therefore the kingdom is here, therefore we got a new thing happening. 
The Son of God is telling the Samaritan woman that things are about to radically change, radically change. For him to say that Jerusalem will no longer be the sole worship center, (laughs) the way to worship God, I mean, that demands a radical change in the way God had related to Israel for 1,500 years, Sinai Covenant Judaism. 1,500 years, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices. That's how you worshiped God. He's telling this woman that with his arrival, that that is going to radically change, and that radical change has already started. The old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the covenant mediated by Moses, is going to start fading This new covenant, of which he is the central focus, is going to increase and increase and increase. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews, salvation is of the Jews. Really important teaching. Rabbi Jerry, let's start with you. Well, the Samaritans did not know much about the one true God because their scriptures were a mixture of truth and error. They had the Torah, which they changed a bit and then added to, and other, some Gnostic things got worked into Samaritan religion as well in later days. So it's a mixture of truth and error. So the God being described in their scriptures intellectually is filled with truth and error as well. Now, the Jewish people did not always follow the Lord correctly. A cursory read of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, will prove that to you. But they did know him intellectually because of his revealed word. They knew who God is and was and always will be because God has disclosed who he is in his word. So in a sense, this answers the question about mountains, she asked, because Messiah Yeshua is saying the Jewish writings are the source of truth, not the Samaritan texts. And this is also meant to be a bit combative. It forces her to press on in the conversation. He's saying, We Jews have the correct text because salvation is from the Jews. And again, the focus here with what Yeshua is saying isn't that Jewish people are so amazing or the rabbis over centuries are so intelligent. It's simply that God has chosen to reveal his word to the Jewish people. And that is the source of truth, God's word. Well, a couple of things. The first is that... um you could almost take it as a play on words in addition to the teaching. When he says salvation is of the Jews, what's the word for salvation? Yeshua, right? Uh, A a little uh, commercial that Jesus is Jewish. Salvation, Yeshua is of the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. Um, And I want to piggyback on something Rabbi Jerry said. When the Samaritans took it upon themselves to change the text of Scripture, they treated something holy in an unholy way. 
So it wasn't just a little mistake to change, inter, interpose Gerizim in the text. That's a huge sin. And so this is not a little thing. Uh, the Samaritans had deviated from the word of God. They had developed their own traditions. And, you know, when we depart from what scripture says or when we take it upon ourselves to add to his word or take away from his word or interpose in his word, we end up with an inaccurate view of who God is. And the Samaritans, of course, had contempt for the Jews and that feeling was mutual Yet God had chosen the Jewish people to be the custodians of that word. And through the Jewish people would come the Redeemer. So again, uh, salvation is from and through the Jewish people. And salvation was standing right in front of her. Again, salvation is mankind's greatest need. We are unsaved. We are alienated from God, we are headed to death, not life, to hell, not heaven. We need Yeshua, salvation. And God designed and chose a unique, special people to be the vehicle through which that salvation would come to the other nations. That is basically the history of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, uh, the focus on God's self-revelation to Israel, and then the prophecies about the seed of the woman, the Redeemer, who is going to come and bring salvation to Israel and the other nations of the world. God designed Israel to be a light to the other nations and to bring salvation to the other nations. So Yeshua is upholding the word of God and God's choice of Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. Does that mean, Rabbi Glennon, Rabbi Jerry, that since Yeshua has come, salvation is no longer of the Jews? Is, is that irrelevant now that Yeshua has come? I mean, obviously today it depends on who you ask, but we would say, I think I can speak for Rabbi Glenn here when I say the answer is obviously no, salvation is still of the Jews and for the Jews and for all the peoples of the world, including the Jewish people. And to the extent that the church fairly early on, even by the mid, you know, third century, had already done everything it could to kind of scrub Christianity of any of its Jewish elements, did real violence uh, to Messiah's people. Um, and so here we are 2,000 years later, and you tell somebody that Jesus is Jewish, the Messiah is Jewish, it's based on promises to Israel, and they look at you like you're from Pluto. Um, and a whole bunch of traditions came in. Things don't just, you don't leave things a void when you remove what belongs there. You don't just have a void. It ends up getting filled with, with uh, errors, and so all kinds of error crept into the church, including, I believe, in a huge way, the allegorical approach to interpreting Scripture. Instead of taking it at face value on its historical, normative, uh, everything became allegorical and fanciful, and, uh, and this very early on with the church fathers. So uh, it is important, though it's not, you know, we're not worshiping Jewishness, 
it is right and proper to understand and respect that salvation came to and through the Jewish people. And the more we understand these Jewish scriptures in the context in which they were given, the deeper and the more accurate our faith is going to be. Salvation is from the Jews. Um, before Yeshua's arrival, it was the nation of Israel and no other nation that had the self-revelation of God in the law, the prophets, the writings. Then Yeshua, the Son of God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, shows up. And then um, he pours out his spirit on the first Jewish followers of Yeshua, the first Messianic uh, Jews, the apostles and others. Gentiles are then grafted in to this faithful remnant of Israel. In one sense, the church is the grafted in remnant from the nations uh, to um, the, the faithful remnant of Israel and to the Messiah of Israel. If you want to be saved today, you have to go through the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, right? You have to be united to the Son of God, Messiah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Don't tell me that salvation is not of the Jews today. It is of the Jews, and especially one Jew in particular, King Yeshua. And King Yeshua is returning to planet Earth, literally, to this world, to Jerusalem, and he's going to bring an even greater salvation to Israel and the nations, and salvation will again be of the Jews. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And what does it mean to worship in truth? Yeshua said the Father, uh, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And how are those two connected, Rabbi Glenn? And let's also discuss the contrast between true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth and false worshipers who don't worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, how about I'll give the definition of what it does mean and then we can uh, discuss what, it, what the antithesis would be. To worship in spirit means to give God the first and the best and to commit to him our thoughts and our emotions, to worship in spirit. It means to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that our prayers are in concert with God's purposes. Uh, when we worship in spirit, it will be heartfelt rather than just perfunctory and going through the motions. Our prayers won't be shallow or selfish, but will be meaningful. And that kind of worship honors him. To worship in truth means to be honest with God, to be honest with others, and to be honest with ourselves. It means no pretense, no posturing, 
uh, admitting our sins and failures as well as expressing our adoration of him. And since he knows us inside and out anyway, why bother trying to put on a show? Why, why play make-believe? To worship in truth means that we're honest with him, honest with others, honest with ourselves. And it also means we are worshiping him in truth the way he is, according to the truth of who God is, how he has revealed himself, how he has commanded us to come to him. You have to come to him on his terms, according to the truth, not on your terms, which might be full of error, right? Worshiping him in spirit, um, as opposed to formal religion, ritualistic religion, ceremonial religion. Do this, do that, do this prayer in this time, in this way, this holiday at that. No. It's about a close, personal, intimate relationship with the living God. God is spirit. That's his very nature. And he needs to be worshipped according to his nature, which is spirit. Rabbi Jerry talked to us about God is spirit, what that means and how that affects the way we relate to him and worship him. Well, God, and really we're talking about God the Father here, but um, also God the Holy Spirit. Uh, God is spirit, which means he is not made out of flesh like we are. Okay? God was not created like we are. God is not made of atoms in the same way that we are. So he is wholly different than created beings. And so since he is spirit, the implication is we must have his spirit to truly worship him. It needs to go beyond this physical realm. It's more than just saying words out loud. It's more than just the sacrifice of animals at this time. That There's something beyond the physical that needs to happen for us to properly worship God. And to receive that spirit, to receive his Holy Spirit, to receive him, as we will see in Scripture, as we've seen in John 3 and elsewhere we'll see, we must know the Son. If you know the Father, you know the Son. It's a package deal, Messiah Yeshua says. And believe in him as well. And this goes back to the idea of Scriptures, right? Salvation comes from the Jews. Our Jewish people may know the Lord intellectually through Scripture because God has revealed who he is, but true worshipers need more than just intellectual knowledge. It's more than just how you were born, as John the Baptist taught us, right? Messiah Yeshua was saying to this Samaritan woman, it goes beyond mountains and cities and your text. You need to worship him in spirit and in truth. And she understands what he says because of what she says next. And to worship in spirit could also be seen as the antithesis of worshiping in the flesh. The Canaanites were uh, people who worshiped however they felt inspired uh, on every high hill and under every green tree. And, and Israel was chastised for imitating that. God gave a way for him to, to worship him. 
And they said, no, I'm going to do it the way I feel like it. Now, moving that into the present day, there's a whole lot of stuff that is called worship that is absolutely not being done in spirit and in truth, but is entirely in the flesh. Uh, I've seen too many YouTube videos of churches basically putting on a concert with flash pots and special effects. And, and so to worship in spirit and truth also uh, implies that we don't worship according to just our, our carnal desires, our earthly appetites. God is not physical. He's not material like we are. He is spiritual. He is mind, emotion, will. He wants a relationship from other spirits, a spiritual relationship. Uh, spirit as opposed to external, physical, you know, ritualistic. Spirit to spirit, uh, deep calls to deep, spirit calls to spirit. So a close, personal, intimate, spiritual relationship with the living God who is spirit. That's real religion, real worship. And you either have it or you don't. So we must approach the God uh, God in spirit as opposed to formal, external, ritualistic, ceremonial, do this, don't do that, laws. No. It's our connection, our relationship to God who is spirit. We must worship him in truth, how he has revealed himself, how he has you know, taught us about who he is and how we're to approach him as opposed to falsehood an error. Let's talk about true worshipers versus false worshipers. Yeshua talks about true worshipers, false worshipers. Rabbi Glenn, any thoughts? No, nothing to add because uh, uh, I feel like my comments earlier okay. were an addressing of false worship. I mean, I, I agree with Rabbi Glenn. There's all sorts of false worship. You know, it says God is looking for those who will worship him that way, you know, in terms of a true worshiper. So we, I think when I think of false worshipers, I go back to the Samaritans. This goes back to what Rabbi Glenn said. What's the motivation for worshiping God in a false way? It's your feelings. It's your desires. It's something going on internally. What was the motivation for the Samaritans to change the mountain from Mount Sinai to Mount Gerizim? It's because that's in their territory. It shows that they're... Worshiping at the right mountain in their territory, not in that incorrect place. Why did the ten tribes try to change the place of worship from Jerusalem? Because they wanted to be in their territory. They wanted to be to their desire. And that's where we can fall into the same trap, is when we look at God's word that clearly says one thing, but because it goes against how we feel or think in our society, in our culture, we say, well, it's not that I'm wrong. It's, this is wrong. And you know, I do believe in God, so I can't say God's wrong, so I have to say, well, maybe people are wrong. Maybe it was just translated the wrong way. Maybe it was just given to us the wrong way. Maybe when God says about things about sexual immorality and, and homosexuality and all these things, maybe we can just translate it differently or about how I'm supposed to conduct myself in business or in any other area of my life. 
And it goes, again, it's that deceptiveness of our hearts. It's a deceptiveness of Satan, where Satan says, did God really say? And that's where we got to keep in mind for these things. The first example of true religion versus false religion, true worship versus false worship is Cain and Abel, right? Abel worshiped God in spirit and in truth. He brought the God-ordained offerings that contained blood. He had a humble attitude towards God uh, that was Abel. Cain did the opposite. He brought a sacrifice without blood, and he had a bad attitude, right? He was not worshiping in spirit or in truth. Both are necessary, not the one uh, or the other. Not, you know, truth is not enough. You can know the truth and not be a worshiper of God. The demons know the truth. They're not worshipers of God. We need both. The spirit, that close, personal, intimate relationship with the living God, and we must base our faith and our actions on truth as God has revealed truth. Old Testament, New Testament. Is worship limited to just singing songs? Saying praise, you know, praising God, uh, thanking God. True worship is also just, it's everything we do, right? Uh, Everything comes under this relationship to God. Every action we take, we're, we're doing it with God in mind. Every word we say, you know, we're saying it thinking, you know, how God, you know, what God would think of what we're saying. Our, our work becomes part of our worship. Our interactions with people become part of, right? True worship is giving yourself entirely uh, to God and serving him and loving him and, yeah, praising him and thanking him, but it's, it's living for him 24-7. The Father is seeking those kinds of worshipers. He, he that delights him. He wants people made in his image to be, to have that kind of relationship with him based on truth and spirit. Is that you? Well, in, under this discussion of the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, Adonai, who loves us as a good father would, took the initiative in saving us. It is in his nature to be gracious, doing good for those who don't deserve it. That would be all of us. But he wants zealous, true worshipers, not half-hearted, not uncommitted people, Everybody wants to get out of jail free card. Uh, you know, he is the sovereign of the universe. He has the right to expect more than just perfunctory service. He has the right to expect of us our very best, whether at work, at home, because again, worship involves every aspect of our lives. He has the right to expect our very best. And those who are willing to give him that are the kinds of people who are fit for his kingdom. 
They are the ones he seeks. The Samaritan woman knew that the Messiah was coming. That was obviously part of the Samaritan faith. And that the Messiah is greater than a prophet. And that the Messiah would be the ultimate authority and would resolve all of these religious issues between the Jews and the Samaritans. And she was right. Verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah is is coming. The one who is called Christ, which means anointed one. Particularly anointed with the Spirit of God, full of the Spirit of God to overflowing. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Yeshua told her, I am he. I am the Messiah. Wow. During his ministry, Yeshua told very few people in simple, clear language that he was the Messiah. Yet he told this Samaritan woman he was the long-awaited Mashiach. Why do you think, Rabbi Glenn? Well, one reason he can be that straightforward about it is because he's in Samaria, not Judea. In light of the long historical estrangement between the Judeans and the Samaritans, he can afford to speak openly of his messiahship with a Samaritan since nobody in Judea is likely to ever hear about it. Now, eventually the time will come for him to have that necessary confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. But there was still, this is very early on in his ministry, there is still much to be done. And now was not the time for him to press his messianic claim with the Jewish people. And another reason is because he knew how this woman thought. She believed in the biblical promise of the coming Messiah. She didn't just, the thing is, she didn't realize that he was standing right in front of her. And she may have been a bit feisty. I think we can agree about that. But there was enough faith in her that she represented a good investment of his time and to give her additional information. So both because it doesn't precipitate a premature threat from the Judeans, he can tell her. But also I think he told her because he saw something in her that she was worthy to hear him come out and say, I am that Messiah. She had been responding rightly and well to everything that Yeshua said. When you respond rightly and well to the information God gives you, he gives you more information. He gives you more truth. He gave this woman even more truth. Uh, God often will hide from the sophisticated people of the world, the wise, the rich, the powerful. He will hide truths from them because for them, truths are like pearls before swine. But God will often reveal great truth to the, the humble, the disadvantaged, the disenfranchised, like this woman. Uh, The angels appeared to the shepherds, not to the people in Jerusalem, the rich and powerful. 
So God is pleased to reveal himself very often to those who have little, to those who have nothing, like this Samaritan woman, but who are willing to believe the truth when it is revealed to them. That's the way our great God works. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or, why are you talking to her? Rabbi Jerry, why were the disciples shocked and afraid to ask Yeshua why he was talking to a Samaritan woman? Well, we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, this is such an unusual thing for Jewish people to do. And again, there's a social implication that it's improper for this amazing rabbi to be talking to a Samaritan who's also a woman and also with no other men or her husband present. But they didn't have the nerve to ask him because they knew they would probably get a harsh word in response. You know, scary Yeshua. So they're, they're starting to learn some things about Yeshua uh, here in this uh, passage, clearly. So they kept their mouths shut, which was probably the wise move to do here. I love what Alexandra brought to my attention several years ago, that Jesus, uh, she calls Jesus sometimes scary Jesus, because he could be very intimidating. He could be very scary. And you got to be careful about challenging the rabbi, the master, the Lord, right? So they were afraid to ask Yeshua why he was talking to this Samaritan woman. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Rabbi Glenn, what's the implication of the woman leaving her water jar, which is why she came to the well in the first place, going back into the village, telling everyone about Yeshua's supernatural knowledge and asking if he might be the Messiah? The implications here are staggering. A leading city in Samaria is about to have a personal encounter with God's promised Messiah, who at that very moment is sitting at the outskirts of town. Imagine the enormity of this, and she gets it. This unnamed woman, a woman with a reputation, a woman who's despised, was the bearer of incredibly good news. He's come to our town. And the lesson for us is that we need to not worry about what people think of us. There's no need to try to impress anyone. Just make the announcement. Because it isn't about us anyway. So we just tell the good news. Eventually we'll be thanked for it for having spoken up. Don't expect to be lauded or respected now. Not going to happen. Eventually, we'll be thanked for it. Just 
make the announcement. Just tell the news. And by the way, in doing so, you please God. Well, I mean, Rabbi Yeshua just told us that God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This woman, she still says, could he possibly be the Messiah? She is not filled with perfect faith yet, but clearly she has real faith in Yeshua, enough to drop her water jar and run back to the village and announce this and evangelize her people. She might not have understood exactly what he meant by living waters and worshiping in spirit and in truth, you know, writing it down as a dictionary definition, but her actions show she is a true worshiper of God because in this moment she is now, for the first time in her life probably, worshiping God in spirit and in truth by responding to what she has heard and sharing it with other people. She doesn't have a degree in this. She simply hears and then acts appropriately. And there's a lesson for us as well to do the same. So the very first person to bring the good news about the Messiah to the people of Sychar is not one of their great financial leaders, political leaders, religious leaders. It is this woman who's been married, divorced, dead husbands, widowed, five times living with a guy, right? She's the one that God has chosen to bring the good, this in, incredible news that the Messiah that they've all been expecting, the Savior of the world, is right on the outskirts of town, and he's told me supernatural things. I think he could be the Messiah. What do you think? God uses, again, the weak, the despised, the little people, the nothings of this world, so frequently to accomplish his will. And that's most of us. We're not big mockers, big players, rich, powerful, wise, extremely well-educated, just ordinary people. But God is pleased to use ordinary people, even despised people, to reveal himself and to proclaim the good news. So don't be intimidated or afraid about, you know, I'm not, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I, I, I don't know much, I'm just... You know enough. If you know one thing, that Yeshua is the Messiah, (laughs) you know enough. So just fill yourself with courage and faith and be filled with the Holy Spirit and do what this woman did for her people who were in desperate need to know who the Messiah was. Notice that she lost interest in her jar of water, (laughs) right? That was so important to her, water. She leaves the water jar behind. The water is like secondary at this. She found something so much more important than even something so important as water. She's got new priorities. She understands the importance of evangelism, telling others the good news that the Savior, the Messiah, has come. What are our water jars? What are we willing to leave behind us in order to do what this woman did and bring this most valuable treasure, the truth about Yeshua, to a dying world around us? Give up your water jars. 
sacrifice your water jars to do the greater work that God has for you. Faith produces evangelism. Being filled with the Holy Spirit produces evangelism. If there is no interest in you in evangelism, you are not full of faith. You are not full of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry.